Yo, I saw um, I saw your posts about Legacy, and I'm a housing bull. Uh, you know, I fe- I feel like there's still a ton of skepticism, uh, you know, on the housing market in general. Um, but the manufactured housing companies seem like a really interesting little niche. Um, you know, and and Legacy in particular feels like it's got a super interesting business model. You got to love the fact that it's kind of founder led, you know, two guys with a $50,000 salary. So lots of interesting uh, little things about this company that piqued my attention. Uh, So I saw some of your posts, read your articles, and you've obviously done a lot of great work on the name. Um, So wanted to have you on. Uh, Obvious disclaimer is, you know, of course, the stock has run a lot. Uh, I think it's up 60% since you wrote about it. uh, And we can certainly talk about that. Um, but I thought a good way to kick it off, Joe, is if you can kind of just give everybody, uh, cause you know, I'm sure this will be a market that not everybody is familiar with. So really maybe just give uh, a couple minutes, spend a couple minutes on the industry description, uh, and how legacy fits within this industry. And then maybe we can talk really more stock specific. What does the valuation look like now? Why do you think it's, uh, still mispriced? If you do think it's still mispriced, um, you know, and just talk about, you know, what you think, you know, what you think uh, the long-term holds for, for this company and this management team. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to start it off too, that, uh, you know, just stay for everyone that, you know, I'm not a professional investor, you know, I, I am a CFA charter holder. Uh, so definitely, um, you know, been, been uh, analyzing businesses for a long time, but uh, ended up in a different industry that has nothing to do with capital markets. And I sort of do this on, you know, uh, part-time and moonlighting or whatnot. And, uh, uh, like posting about it on, on Twitter and talking to you all. Um, but, uh, uh, so with that out of the way, I guess, uh, yeah, just manufactured housing as a, as an industry and just, I guess, housing as an industry is really how I came into, you know, manufactured housing too. Um, you know, it's, I've been, uh, following the housing industry for, uh, 12 years. I actually worked for an appliance company, um, that, that builds appliances for, primarily the housing industry and uh, uh, started my um, career as an analyst. And, you know, um, really early was, was watching the housing market. And, you know, uh, I've, I know <clears throat> to you, you've, you've posted uh, a few charts from calculated risk I've seen, and, and I've been following them for uh, over a decade. And, and uh, it, one of the things that got me excited about just the housing market in general um, was just the demographic wave that's coming. And, and, you know, I was probably early on that, you know, 2016, there's this chart and I think you put it in your, uh, uh, GFP write-up, um, that, that Bill McBride has been posting for, uh, several years now. And, uh, you know, it, there's this wave of population in that 30 to 40, um, age demographic that that was going to come and and from 2016 it was already starting to climb and it wasn't going to peak until 2028 and that is like the prime demographic obviously for housing nothing happened for a long time you know like housing would tick up low single digits every year and and we never had this uh you know explosion of demand but it was just coiling the spring and i've been you know again following thinking about how, how to play this um when whenever the spring unleashes and um so, you know, the, the builders obviously is the first, you know, call it level one way to think about it. And, uh, you know, but the, there's reasons why those are less attractive than the manufactured housing industry. And mainly they, uh, they're not as capital efficient, you know, they have to be land developers. They, they don't have a choice, you know, where, uh, you know, in manufactured housing space, you can choose to, 
develop manufactured housing communities, but you know, it's a choice to, to be a manufactured housing manufacturer, a builder. Uh, you, that's not something that you have to do. And, and so you have all this capital, which means you, you're usually using debt and, you know, you're just less robust to, you know, adverse situations, um, you know, for the traditional builders. Uh, and uh, so I, I got, first got involved in, in this industry with, with uh, you know, Cavco actually was trading at a, a very low multiple and, you know, 20, 2018, 2019, um, they had some company specific stuff that was the reason for that. But, you know, um, started an investment there, started paying attention. Legacy didn't come public until, um, you know, right around that time as well. I think late 2018. Um, and so it wasn't on my radar, but, uh, the manufactured housing industry in general, you know, it's, it's attractive because you get not only the demographics from the, the, the millennials that, that 30 to 40 year old age group that that's going to be surging, but, um, you also get this huge tailwind from the demographic that that's going to be downsizing the, the boomers eventually. And, and I don't think that's really happened yet. I mean, it's it, a little bit of trickle, but, um, you know, 75 is the new 65 and there's still, <laughs> I think there's still a, a long ways to go on, on, and people are delaying, you know, sheltering a place longer or, or living in, in their homes longer before, you know, doing something. But, uh, uh, eventually, um, they're going to go look for a different situation. And a lot of those folks um, are going to continue migrating to the South. Most of the population growth um, in, in the United States has happened in, in the South and in the West and the Midwest and Northeast has, has been losing folks outside of, uh, you know, some migration or, or immigration. And, uh, you know, so I think that's going to continue. And, and that's where most of the manufactured housing um, plants are is, is in you know, it's heavily concentrated in, in the South and Mid-Atlantic and a little bit of the, in the center, but not so much in the North and Northeast or uh, up and down the West coast. I mean, they have manufactured housing, houses or housing plants everywhere, but um, very concentrated down there. I think 20% of the entire industry is in Texas. Um, so you got all the demographic tailwinds, love following that. It's more capital light. You don't need, you know, you have your facility, your plant, but you're talking, you know, 10, $20 million for, for a facility and, uh, you know, some, some equipment, and then you can, you know, start building houses. Uh, the biggest constraint is, you know, you have to move the houses to where they're going to go. Right. So, uh, transportation is, is, uh, something that, you know, generally they can only serve hundred, 200 mile radius around, uh, their, their plant. Uh, so that limits them a little bit, but, uh, since it's not that expensive to, to tip up other manufactured, manufacturing facilities, it, it's really not a, a, a big restriction there. Um, the other thing is, you know, manufacturing in a plant, you get all kinds of efficiencies from, uh, you know, the labor management, you know, you're not managing a network of contractors to get something done. You don't have as much waste from all the materials coming on site and, and not getting used efficiently. Uh, you get better uh, you know, procurement efficiencies, bringing everything into one spot and, and uh, commonizing your, uh, a lot of your materials. Uh, so you just, you definitely, that drives the price down and keeps it efficient from that standpoint. So it, it is a little bit of a niche. And then I think mostly is nobody was talking about it, right? Like you have Warren Buffett that owns the biggest manufactured housing um, company. The Clayton Homes is like 50% of the entire industry. And, you know, he he talks about how great a business it is, but no one can invest in it. So it doesn't get talked about, you know, in the, in the investing world too much. 
And, uh, you know, there was also a big bust that happened at the end of the 1990s into the 2000s where the industry really got um, decimated. They were, there's a lot of subprime lending and, and uh, uh, a lot, pretty much all the lenders left the market and collapsed and a lot of the plants closed. Um, so there's kind of a, one of those capacity constraints now. There's not that many plants and, and that many companies left doing this. And uh, uh, now we're just hitting that demand surge and long tailwind. So Joe, Joe, can you, can you just give some of the perspective? I, I, when I, I, I don't know the numbers, I'm sure you will, but, but, but when I first saw how much the industry contracted, uh, I was, I was a bit shocked. Can you give a perspective of how dramatic um, uh, kind of that, that, that fall in demand was? Yeah. So um, I'll go back to the, you know, the late nineties. Um, I think back then they were delivering 350,000 homes or maybe a little more um, per year. And they, I mean, in 2010, it was 50,000 homes. So it, it dropped off quite a bit from the 98, uh, 99 to, you know, the 2002. And I, that's right around the time when Buffett bought Clayton homes. Um, and, and the reason for that decline, um, you know, I wasn't obviously following the industry then, but, uh, from my understanding is, is that just people started a couple things. One, the, the lenders were making loans they shouldn't have made. And then you had the housing boom happening on, on the stick belt side that everyone wanted to have a single family house and everyone could, right? Because there's subprime lending going on there too. And, uh, but when all the lenders pulled out of the market and then the defaults started to happen, um, it, it just dropped the demand because the, the companies themselves weren't making the loans back then. And, the, and there's no... Uh, no one was packaging these loans and um, turning them into, you know, other investment vehicles and, and whatnot, like the mortgage-backed securities. So uh, with that gone, that, that disappeared. And Buffett sees an opportunity to buy a company that, you know, is selling at pennies on the dollar. And then he sees a way to deploy all kinds of, you know, capital into making loans and stuff. So um, we don't know the specifics on Clayton's lending business, but uh, that was obviously a part of their strategy for sure. But anyway, so that went from 350,000 down to 50,000. We're back to like a hundred thousand um, right now. Uh, and, and there'd be more if, you know, right now there's backlogs that are nine months plus out for pretty much everybody um, in the industry. So uh, they're, they're really constrained, not necessarily on capacity from an industry standpoint, but from a, you know, labor and, and material standpoint that they really can't, uh, build any faster than that. And then from a plant standpoint, there was, you know, a hundred different companies and 250 plants in 1990. And, uh, you know, in 2012, right towards the bottom, there was 45 companies and 123 plants. So you just, uh, you know, cut in half. Got it. And so, so we're back to around a hundred thousand, which, which puts legacy at something like a little under 5% market share. The fact that they're at five and Clayton's at 50, do they have a unit cost disadvantage or they're, you know, is the, um, you know, what, what are the benefits to scale? Um, and why is it okay for legacy to be a relatively smaller player? Uh, is that opportunity or is it risk or is it both? Yeah. You know, I don't, think there's a whole lot i mean you, you get some efficiencies obviously from you know maybe on the back end office side of things and, and maybe some procurement side of things you know with with more scale but because you still can only deliver within a couple hundred miles of of your plant 
you know, having 50 plants just means you can service more of the country here in more markets. Um, instead legacy, you know, they, they started their business in, in 2006. Um, I, I guess I'm not hundred percent. I assume that they started with one plant and then they, you know, grew into two plants and, and whatnot. I guess I don't know that for sure. How many, how they started there, but, um, they, uh, they've been in the industry a long time. They knew their market and, and very well. Right. And so they, you know, stuck to where, you know, they knew they could win instead of expanding all over the place. And, and so I don't know, um, Clayton Holmes too. I mean, I think they continued to grow through acquisition. I mean, they were just mopping up, um, various folks that were struggling, uh, from that 2002 up there. So I, they really grew through acquisitions as well. Okay. Got it. Okay, so I think it's a decent overview. Um, just one last question on industry before we move to the stock. Is any of your thesis, thesis reliant on you know, manufactured housing taking share uh, of housing starts? Um, or is it really, uh, you know, is it kind of untethered to that broader, broader environment? Yeah, you know, so from the beginning, I guess when I started investing here, it, it I looked at that as all of like, free upside, right? Just based on, from a valuation standpoint. So I, I do think it's going to, I do think it can take share, but I don't know that it will necessarily. The things that have to happen for it to take share are things like more or less restrictive zoning, right? So depending on where you are in the country, the, the, each municipality sort of decides on what they will zone for housing, right? And in certain parts of the country, like Texas, it's more, they're more lenient on, you know, it's more accepted that you know, uh, manufactured housing communities or that people have, you know, yeah, entire neighborhoods of manufactured homes In other parts of the country that's really frowned upon. There's the not in my backyard sort of mentality. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so that would be a, a major hurdle and, and I'm not, my thesis doesn't really have that, uh, changing instead. I think that the, where zoning is less restrictive to begin with and, and where manufactured housing is more accepted is where, um, a lot of the migration within the country and the like population growth is happening, right? So uh, I think the population is going to grow faster in those areas. So I think we're going to get some share just from that. But you could get some upside, especially if on a government side, you know, there's major political pushes to solve the affordable housing crisis with manufactured housing being one of those solutions. Um, that sounds like a great idea. And, and it constantly is it's always in the mix of of the ways that they're going to solve the problem but there's huge amounts of lobbying by all the, the the traditional building industry to to not let that happen so that's a battleground i have no um you know predictions on you know what will happen there um and then the other piece is financing right so it's very you can get low rate loans to finance a home not the same for manufactured housing so that's been a hurdle an argument against it, you know, um, for, for a long time, but, um, it, you, then you have, so, I mean, you can get loans, but generally you're, you're getting a loan for the home and not the, or the land, if that's separate, it's not, you know, bundled together like a, a mortgage. Um, and, uh, you know, for insurance purposes and, uh, you know, your, your house is a depreciating asset instead of an appreciating asset when you buy a, a traditional house. So, all those things, you know, kind of count against you or, or hurt the the demand for that. That said, there's there is moves to, for things like modular houses, which is a type of manufactured house. So there's there's kind of two 
forms of manufactured housing. There's HUD houses, which are, um, you know, regulated by housing and urban development. Um, you know, that there's, there's a lot of, like there's an inspector sitting in the plant certifying every single uh, home that comes off the line um, in order to sell that. And they're on a permanent chassis. You can move it around, plop it down, hook it up, but you can also, you could, re, you could move it again. Uh, modular homes are still manufactured and they're locate or relocated, you know, in sections and then put together on site and you're not moving that they're put to, on a, you know, a foundation uh, on the site. And those are regulated by HUD. Those have to follow local building codes. And so again, depending on where you're at, those building codes might be different and allow different things. Um, on the modular side, you, it's more common to have, you know, your home and your land and everything all packaged together, much like a mortgage and, and you can get mortgage like rates there. And I think they are, um, you know, there is even some, um, collateralization or, or, uh, uh, you know, securitization of those loans um, by even the, the Fannie and Freddie's uh, to some extent. I think there's a lot of, you know, restrictions on it has to meet like all these criteria in order to, to count. And so I think it's a pretty low mix in the industry, but the, the rationale would be like that, that could increase, they could expand that and that would be upside to demand. Uh, again, not really counting on that since I think there's a lot of uh, paradigm hurdles and a lot of, lobbying against you know change that uh will make that go slow but it can't get worse i don't think okay got it that's super helpful so so walk us through i mean obviously the you know the stocks worked but fundamentals are pretty tremendous uh walk us through kind of how you're thinking about valuation uh you know the opportunity um just however however you want to frame uh the investment thesis yeah i i take a pretty simplistic approach when I look at this and, and basically my, my favorite multiple is, is EBIT to EV. So um, what, what I saw with legacy is that you have this big loan portfolio that either scares people away or they don't understand. And there, you can't easily see what the, you know, economics are and the, the return profile is for the actual manufacturing business, unless you, you know, go, calculate that yourself. So you're not going to find it in the 10 K, right? You have, unless you, you know, do, it's not hard math, but you basically isolate the um, manufacturing income and, and the cost related to that. And uh, you can figure out what the operating income is there. And uh, then, you know, what I do is I take the, the consumer loans and the commercial loans and uh, take it at the fair value stated in um, you know, in the, the 10 K and the, and the quarterly statements and, and which, which pretty much match book value. Um, I think we got some big moves and in, uh, interest rates or something, you know, the, the book value and the fair value could change a little bit. And obviously there's a lot of, uh, um, there's some leeway in, in your fair value calculations, but, uh, I, I pretty much just take it from that standpoint, the loans and, uh, um, add that back in to, to figure out the total enterprise value and, um, you know, can figure out, and, and put my own estimate on what the manufacturing side is worth. So I, what I do is I kind of take, Hey, you know, on the conservative end, given all the setup, there's no, it seems crazy that the manufacturing business would trade at less than 10 times EV to EBIT. That, that's kind of my bear case on just the manufacturing um, business. And, and part of the reason why I think, you know, anything lower than that's absurd is, is the, the return on invested capital um, 
for that business is, is pretty insane. Um, I, I kind of look, I like to use the green bat return on invested capital. So you take the, you know, working capital PP and E and current inventory. You don't worry about any of the non-tangible stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, just divide the, the income into it, the operating income. And they're at almost 70% return on invested capital of that manufacturing business. And it's all hidden inside everything else. So, uh, I put on as a bear case, 10 times base case, 15 times bull case, 20 times that EV to EBIT. Um, the, the peers are, are trading at that 20 times. Um, I, I don't, I have no reason to believe that the market will give it a, a similar multiple with the way, uh, you know, just having the lending business embedded in there and, and the optics of that is smaller size, less investable. There's not as much float because, um, the owner, founder, owner owns, owns so much of it. Um, so that's kind of my base case. And so when I do that, um, I end up with a, a bear case at 24 bucks um, and a, a base case of 31 bucks and a bull case of, you know, almost 40 bucks. And, and the upside is that I'm being way too conservative on the lending business. The return on uh, equity of, of that business is, you know, pretty attractive and, and really should have a higher fair value. It's worth more than, you know, what you could maybe sell it, I guess, on the secondary market, particularly because anyone buying those loans, you know, would, was going to, of course, worry about def- defaults more than, say, a legacy would because, you know, yeah, you get to, you could get to repossess the house. There's some cost to that, but legacy has the infrastructure to, and, and the know-how to, to move those houses around, to resell those houses. To, you know, they have their own retail stores. So it, the, the, the loss that they could or would it have on a, on a default is going to be a lot less than, you know, if it was someone else servicing that loan. So I'm probably being so too what's the rough, there. What's the, on the, on the loan side, what's the rough math? They borrow at four, lend at 14 and, and lose, uh, what's kind of the annual loss rate? Is it, is it really low? Is it two or three, something like that? Yeah, they've been, I think they're under two right now on the loss rate. And, uh, I don't know that they've, I don't know if they, I don't think they've ever been above three as a publicly traded company. Um, I don't know if there's been some pretty nasty kind of oil uh, crashes, you know, since they've run the business. And and so I don't know what they've seen in the Texas market, you know, in oil crashes, but even that market is less um, uh, the mix in, in around Austin and Dallas. And, you know, there's a lot of businesses that have come in besides, you know, oil. So um, it's uh, yeah, it, it's been pretty low. And then, the recovery rates, um, you know, I don't have in front of me any estimates on that, but you know, you're, if a new house back, so right now you have the other thing is your <laughs> prices for manufactured homes have gone up like 40% in the last year and a half. So the collateral just gets, has gotten more expensive and you can't buy a house right now for without a nine month plus lead time. Um, so the right now, all that, collateral is, is, is super valuable. Obviously that's not always the case, um, but uh, uh, definitely changed the situation on their current loan book because they made those loans at much lower prices. So it's a really attractive lending business, but I think you've argued in the past that it's, you know, I don't know if this is how you phrased it, but kind of over collateralized. You just mentioned it kind of holds back the metrics of manufacturing. You know, would you prefer them to have some sort of securitization solution or some financial partner to get the loans off the balance sheet or, and, or is that realistic and, or is that something that management would never do? 
Yeah, I don't think management has any intention to, you know, offload the the loans. They they look at it as a very attractive return on capital. Um, you know, I they they haven't gave any specific targets, um, but you can tell that their target is double digits. You know, on their on their capital, and if they sold their loan book, they'd have all this cash, and what would they do with it, right? And so, uh, I think they really like the the lending business, um, and and. They, there's some old letters um, from the, the management to Cavalier Homes back. They're registered at the SEC, um, but as way before, something like 2010, 2009, 2010. And they were an investor in Cavalier Homes and, and Cavalier Homes was trying to sell their lending business. And they were writing the, the management team and the board of Cavalier Homes letters saying why that was just stupid, like super stupid to do that. And uh, right. um, they ended up doing it anyways. And the reason was, is they were getting purchased by... Uh, Clayton Homes, so that they ended up, they were, for some reason, they were trying to offload that in order to sell the rest of the business. I'm not sure on the details, but it was clear that they see the lending business as attractive. Um, from from my own standpoint, I think it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is, I want to close the multiple gap between the peers, well, then you would, you know, you're more likely to do that if you get rid of the loan book, right? Um, but, you know, these guys have their wealth tied up in here. They see a way to compound tax-free their wealth at a high rate of return for a long time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm frankly, I'm okay with that. I, the book value of that, just in the last 12 months, the book value is up almost 19%, I think, year over year. And, and, and they have been clear that that's their kind of preferred metric on on uh, the company is, is watching book value grow. And, it's grown at over 15%, you know, consistently. And um, there's no reason to believe that that won't continue. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I'm thinking of something like the timeshare business where obviously they're still the originator, um, but they kind of pile up the loans every six, nine months, uh, securitize, securitize. It's similar dynamics, honestly. I mean, although their cost of funds is even lower post securitization, Um, you know, they're kind of like borrowing at three, lending it, 13, 14, 15, that sort of thing. But ultimately it's a little more asset light because of those securitizations that happen on a somewhat recurring basis. But, um, but uh, okay. So it's, it's steady Eddie. There's nothing, there's not going to be some step change in kind of analyzing uh, the lending versus finance. Functionally it's, it's, this is one business. I mean, we can disaggregate it, but there's nothing that's going to change about kind of the way that the way that they structure this. Yeah. Not, uh, no, no reason to believe that they plan to do anything different except uh, make keep making loans when when it makes sense to them. But uh, you know, it it may get tougher here as let you know if it's easy to get loans elsewhere. You know that business they won't find you know spots to park that money. Got it. Um, so let's talk about. I think you mentioned the the relative valuation gap versus peers. Why does it exist? Um, you know, is it, is it, is it about float? Is there, is there something else? Is it about lending? Can you just kind of disaggregate why there's sort of, I mean, it's relative valuation versus peers, but maybe it's just versus your fair, fair value as well. So you can really phrase it however you want, but let's just disaggregate, um, kind of what, you know, what's, what's holding valuation back in your estimation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you take, again, you strip out all the economics from the loans and you look at what the manufacturing business is, is essentially, trading for based on the market cap today um, of, of legacy um, and compare it to the peers. The, the peers are trading at, you know, 
20 times um, EBIT to, to EV. Uh, everyone has fin- phenomenal balance sheets. Um, Skyline has net cash. Cavco has net cash. Those are really the only two uh, left. I think they're both about 15% market share. Um, you got uh, Clayton at, at 50%, and then you got you know 5% for legacy, and the rest is all still fragmented. Um, and, uh, uh, why it's, why they're getting such a high multiple. I mean, they, they, they didn't always, I mean, even, uh, so before the pandemic started and then, you know, builder valuations had, you know, bounced two, 300% off the lows, um, you know, by the middle of the summer, uh, in 2020 and, and, you know, the entire industry was still, uh, trading, you know, a lot lower, um, but uh, eventually, I think, you know, it just is being realized that, hey, these guys are going to benefit from from all the same reasons that the regular home builders are. And um, these are attractive businesses. So they're getting a premium multiple. Why legacy or why legacy is uh, not getting the same multiple? It's, I think it's a few things, right? Like we talked about one, it's hard to see what the actual uh, manufacturing business is trading for without, you know, you, you can't just pull it up on a, a Bloomberg terminal and, uh uh, the lending business again scares people. They they either want to play housing or they want to you know play banks, right? Find the investor that wants to do both. You know maybe a little tougher. And then you know it is a small cap, and then even smaller from a float standpoint, which m- makes it just a lot less investable. Walk, walk us through the float dynamics. Yeah, so uh, I mean the market cap right now is uh, six hundred and change, right? And um, here, I got a couple notes here. So the, yeah, so you have four, 240 million in market value of shares that really aren't held by insiders. So that's pretty much the flow. I think the float that you'd see from a metric is a little higher than that because they're only, you know, they're looking at all the shares that aren't owned by uh, Kurt and Kenny. Um, but there's also, uh, you know, Kenny's two brothers own a decent amount of shares as well. And, uh, so that for all intents and purposes, isn't part of the float. Um, and, uh, you know, really not trading. So, you know, over half the company is, is, uh, owned by that group of people. Got it. And, and they're, I think you mentioned they're, they are selling some stock over time. Is that correct? And um, uh, can, can you just give me the background there? Yeah. So there, there's been plenty of kind of autopilot pilot type sales by uh, particularly Kurt, you know, from the, the most size. Um, and uh, so he's sold 500,000 shares. Um, I think he owns 3 million. Um or is it 6 million to pull that up again, but he, so he's sold, you know, 500,000 shares in the past 12 months. There's only 20, uh, 24, 25 million shares total um, of the company. And uh, uh, he also has another, uh, there's a bunch of shares, maybe a million or so um, one or 2 million shares in a charitable trust for his grandchildren. Um, and that trust has sold, you know, 300,000 shares too in the last year. I don't know that that's on like an autopilot or, or anything. Um, I have no idea, but on, on Kurt's, you know, shares that he owns just in his name, um, he seems to sort of be selling, you know, 10,000 shares 
two, three times a month um, at whatever the prices are. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that just keeps increasing the float. And I don't view that as a negative signal um, from the standpoint of presume you got to assume these guys went public because they didn't need capital. They, they had plenty of capital, um, but they wanted a way to, you know, diversify their, their wealth over time. Um, they don't pay themselves uh, any salary, really. I mean, they get 50000 dollars in salary and they have no stock options or anything like that. So, um, you know, they, they win when the company wins and, um, you know, Kurt is 67 years old and, um, you know, they always say there's a million reasons to sell. There's only one reason to buy, but, uh, uh, I just look at it as it's increasing the float over time here. Now at the same time, the company was buying stock during COVID. Is that correct? For, for a really short amount of time. Um, so yeah, like when it went down to, I think it got down to like 1.2 or 1.3 times book value. Um, they started, they, they authorized a, a buyback and they started buying back shares. Um, but then as soon as it bounced back up to you know, $15 a share and, and 1.5 times book value, um, they stopped that. So they kind of, it was quite a while ago, they kind of got asked a question about that on one of the calls. And um, they basically made it sound like under 1.3, under 1.2, something like that, you know, they like buying their stock, but for whatever reason, 1.5, they'd rather do other stuff with the money. Got it. Uh, diligent Dollar, you had a question. Yeah, I actually, I have a, a few different questions on this name. I actually own Skyline, um, and so I know the industry relatively well. Um, but when I when I look at the growth of Legacy, and you know, maybe it's it's sort of dragged down by the financing business, but it doesn't look like it's been as strong as a Cavco or a Skyline. Is that, is that location uh, driven? And maybe it's the financing piece that's sort of bringing that back down compared sort of what you were talking about. Is there something about their exposure that, you know, maybe the growth hasn't been as strong. And then the second question was you, you sort of mentioned, Hey, this is, you know, nearly 40% of the float is controlled by, um, you know, this, these guys, they're not that huge in the market. Uh, so that sort of creates this orphaned asset, but is it also that it, it's kind of an orphaned asset because no one thinks like a skyline or a Cavco or a Clayton can ever acquire it in the industry because it's gotten so much more consolidated. Yeah. Good questions. Um, so on the growth side, uh, what what time frame are, are you kind of looking at there? Like the last twelve months, or kind of over a longer period of time? Yeah, yep. Sort of the last couple of years um, is is kind of what I was looking at. Yeah. So Q three twenty twenty, they were uh, that just manufacturing product sales was you know thirty six and a half million, and, and they just did in the last quarter. This, this is just one quarter. Um, you know, forty eight million. So. Um, I think if you add up, yeah, last four quarters, 163 million, the prior four quarters before that 143. So, I mean, they're growing at double digits. Um, that said, they, they were going, going into the pandemic. They were already, uh, their 10 K basically said we're at capacity, right. Where Cavco, uh, I think was always around 80% is what they always said capacity and, and skyline was a lot lower than that, I think. Um, so definitely the other two had capacity, um, available and, um, the, that is a reason to 
have a higher multiple. So Skyline for sure uh, deserved a higher multiple when it was trading at, you know, $30 a, a share. Uh, it still looked expensive. And and now it's got a similar multiple and it's, 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 you know, much higher because they doubled their business, but they had the capacity uh, available to do that. Got it. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Um, that, that said, you, you, you know, one of the, I, I definitely miss Skyline that one, <laughs> that one, uh, I should have, I should have been able to figure out too, that that's been a home run. Um, but you, you had, you had that execution risk, like, can they execute on it? Right. Like just cause you think the setup is there and, you know, adding that capacity back. I work for a manufacturer and been in, in the ops side of things too. And um, it, it's a lot easier said than done, but they, they've executed super well. Yep. To your point on the return on invested capital of this business, I, you know, I made this note when I was, um, on my blog and it was like, you know, in the past 12 months, Skyline basically increased EBITDA. I'm going to make up numbers now by like 140 million, but CapEx actually went down during COVID, you know, basically they pulled some of the growth CapEx down and went from like 15 to 8 million. It's just a highlight that they were able to flex up their capacity to max increase EBITDA that much and not really you know, CapEx barely went up or actually went down. And it's at the end of the day, we're talking about super small numbers. So to your point on like, do you own a home builder or do you own a manufactured housing player? I mean, I I agree with your thesis here that there is a housing shortage. If you look at some of the high-end manufactured housing too, the product has just drastically improved. Um, And then you have a way less balance sheet intensive name uh, or just industry. Um, so I, I think I, I love the pitch. Um, I haven't, I haven't heard of legacy, so this is an interesting one. Yeah. Great. Thanks for the questions. Yeah, I saw Gary and Brian hopped on as speakers. You guys had questions. Yeah. Um, we, so I'll go back a little bit and, and I don't want to take away from, from anyone else, but um, I actually, ironically, Joe, you brought this up, but I first came across this name right when Skyline was doing the merger with Champion. I had started a small investment management firm. It was a month old at, at that point in time. And then I shifted over and, and um, you know, ironically, in hindsight, probably made the wrong decision because we went way big into this. Um, rather than Skyline Champion. And everybody knows that one's worked out much, much better, relatively. Um, but a couple things that stuck out, just to add, is that the industry decline, when I, I called around to maybe a dozen uh, mobile home or manufactured housing retailers, and one of the things that stuck out, Joe alluded to this a little bit, is, is the NIMBY aspect where your customer generally doesn't have the means to put the product somewhere even if you finance them to purchase the product. So you did have kind of stick-built housing had a relative advantage as mortgage rates came down. Um, But you had this aspect uh, which seemed um, apparent that there was a little bit of a bottleneck of of where do you place these. And then that's when their first 10K, which ironically was delayed, um, and that shaved you know, a couple bucks off the stock. Um, at that point in time, it pushed into like the low nines in April. Um, 
that 10K alluded to that first acreage purchase. And at the time, they were also toggling with that retail format. So you could see these guys were trying to figure out a way to, to undo the bottleneck um, and the acreage. And, and they walked through some of the math on the last quarter. It's very compelling. Um, the second thing that sticks out is if, if I know a lot of people have read that book by um, Bruce Greenwald from Columbia Competition Demystified. There's a f- several large sections in that book on local or regional economies of scale. And if you look at Clayton, which has half the industry, they have something like 40 production plants. And it's just an average, right? I'm sure they have some very, very, very efficient plants. They, but their average across their whole fleet is about 1,000 homes per plant. If you look at that Georgia facility that Legacy has, it does um, about 22 to 2,400. They quote it on a call as like, you know, they do uh, 13 units a day or 13 floors a day, right? Which for them equates to like 10, 10 homes a day. Um, so you had that aspect of significant regional economies of scale that really allow them in that region to compete with anyone. Advertising has some national scale, but other than that, you have to have, you know, dense routes. You have to fill your trucks for something like this, right? It's one unit on a truck. Um, so that was something that, that seemed really exciting. I think on the loan book, one thing that, um, I wish these guys talked more about, I tried to push them on the last call. I asked a question about it was they have some sort of preferred return. They hold back 20% of the gross profit that the dealer generates. So the dealer buys from them wholesale. There's a markup. These guys hold 20% back into that loan pool, pending an 8% preferred return on their, their being legacies capital. Then once that 8% is paid back, including all their capital, 8% along the way, once they're paid back on their capital, they split the upside thereafter. So it's not like, it's not a plain vanilla, you know, it's not um, like a credit acceptance corp in, in the subprime auto space where it's a plain vanilla loan. There's this other structure where they're holding back some gross profit. They're making these loans at about um, 80% plus or minus loan to value. And then they're holding back a few thousand bucks that really collateralizes them even further. And I think that's interesting. I think that's something they should, they should really highlight quite a bit more. Um, but to me, it makes that, that loan portfolio more resilient um, and able to withstand you know, some economic shocks from time to time, which it has, of course. Brian, that's a yeah, fascinating point part. about the local economies of scale. Mm-hmm. Remind us, what, what is roughly, like if I have a unit, I'll just make up numbers. If I'm a consumer and I pay $50,000 for the unit, like how does that split between shipping versus um, uh, and now maybe it's a COGS issue for the manufacturer, but can you just give a rough sense of shipping as a percentage of, of COGS or finished home good, value, what, however you want to phrase it? They may, so all in, they make these homes for obviously like the single units or the single wides, they call them for, for low 30,000. I think if you kind of just do the math that, that Joe alluded to, it, it comes out to like 32,000 bucks. That includes in most cases shipping is my understanding, but not in all cases. In some cases that's, um, paid for uh, by the mobile home park if there's a purchase there. Um, so it, it, I think it gets muddy. Joe can probably answer this. I, I thought a number I read somewhere was it's like 1500 bucks or 1000 bucks. It's probably, I mean, I know from 
Carvana and Vroom and those guys, they deliver a car for five or 700 bucks um, is, the, is the charge that Vroom charges for a single car. So you can imagine a mobile home is, you know, it's a closer distance um, for sure, you know, within that one or 200 mile range. And, and I did see it quoted two years ago as something in the like thousand to 1500. Um, but it is the case where you can build a really big plant, which they have, they didn't, they, they didn't build it. They bought it. It's a 400,000 square foot plant um, that they have in Georgia. And I think they have it half utilized right now and half outfitted, but you can run that plant hard um, and it's very efficient and you don't have to be Clayton with, with facilities and, you know, something like 30 States, right. And the 40 plants they have, because there's really the, the, the chapter in, in competition demystified. It's a great book, by the way, I highly, highly, highly recommend it, but it talks about cores when it was regional. I'm going to go off on a quick tangent cores when it was regional competing with Anheuser-Busch. And it said, that there's, you might save five or 10% on national advertising versus if you're a small guy within a region, but that totally gets unwound. The number might be 20% higher if you're shipping, if you're not saturating a market and you're shipping half full beer trucks, as an example. So you can see like operationally, you can quickly chew through whatever 100, 200, 500 basis points you save on whatever your national right? Advertising advantages or other national advantages, running a website, for example. Um, so that was something that, that was very obvious uh, all along. And, and these guys obviously had a very messy situation, right? They had a delayed 10K right out of the gates. Um, it was delayed. Everybody started calling accounting fraud. Um, you typically, like my guess was you don't have two founders who pay themselves 50,000 bucks. They didn't unload a single share into the IPO. That's not like really a fraudy type situation. Uh, I spoke with a former employee. This is maybe a year subsequent to the IPO after. So there was CFO turnover, the first CFO they hired. They also pulled in a new auditor. The auditor put out a statement um, that, or they put out a statement on behalf of the auditor that it wasn't that there was a qualified, qualified opinion. It was just a change in auditors. Um, but you had a CFO hired and then he left, general counsel left. Um, so this thing has had kind of taint all over it um, for a number of years. And if you, the former employee I spoke with said that these guys basically, you either get on, the quote he gave me was, you either get on the train or you get run over by it. And these guys mentioned, um, if you go back maybe a year and a half ago, and even if you go back during COVID, they want one of the comments was they knew how much lumber they had they didn't know where the lumber was so the lumber comes in they buy it as a single purchase they don't know how much is at each of their three plants and you could tell from that quarterly call that really pissed them off and that was right around the time that um the cfo the first cfo resigned and so it was clear these guys wanted more specific internal accounting which i thought was actually a positive right not a negative um although the headline always looks bad um, I don't know. And I, I think with respect to the, to the potential discount rate, Joe did a great job walking through the valuation with respect to the discount. There's, this is a little textbook ish, but if you read anyone who does or, or knows about the appraisal process, private equities used on their portfolio companies, um, there's a book valuation by Shannon Pratt, who's, uh, kind of the gold standard in that industry. 
And he did, um, he actually cited several empirical studies and the studies show that um, in terms of real dollars, and he does it on trading price, he does it on acquisition price relative to trading price, et cetera, when there's a non-controlled discount, which is actually what we have here because you have um, the founders and Shipley's two brothers own something like 60 or 65% of shares. So you have less than half outstanding. If we collectively as a group owned every share that's out there for float, um, we still wouldn't control the company. And that's fine, right? These guys are great operators and stewards of capital, but that creates potentially a non-controlled discount. And in some of those studies, the discount's big. It's like 20 to 30. Um, one study I think cited like 38 or 40%. So that's a discount to full price um, for having no control. And it makes sense, right? If you don't control a business and you're along for the ride, bad shit can happen. Um, And there's no way out, right? We have the ability to sell shares, but there's no way to throw management out. And again, that's not something I think anyone worries about here, Um, but that's just the empirical data. I'm having n- nightmares of studying for the CFA. So thanks for, thanks for bringing those back. <laughs> uh, so what, what is the, what's the end game? I think, um, Joe, you mentioned that, that one of the two gentlemen is 67. What is there? Um, is there a next generation behind these gentlemen or what's kind of the end game and what's, what's their planning for the company five, 10 years from now? Yeah, so I, I actually had that listed as one of my risks, you know, when I did my write-up was, uh, you know, that not knowing the bench strength behind these guys is is kind of a risk. And, and you know, we don't ever hear Kenny talk very much either. Like Kurt definitely is the 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 main operator brains, and, and you can tell that he, he takes all the capital allocation type questions on, on where they're making investments. And, uh uh, Kenny chimes in, you know, on any front wheel sales type questions. So he, and, and then his brothers and him own, uh, you know, a dealership business or, or maybe more than one, but um, so, you know, he came up or they, he definitely has experience on, on the retail side. Right. Um, so I, I worry more about what, what happens if, if something happens to, to Kurt, cause that's where the, the main value creation from what I can tell seems to be coming from. Um, he's getting older and, and, uh, so that, that's a, that's a wild card. Um, you know, I take comfort that he still owns a ton of, you know, equity. And even from a board of director standpoint, he can make a lot of those or help with a lot of those big decisions, um, you know, without being even in day-to-day type operations. Um, and this last quarterly call though, they, they did mention, he, he called out that, Hey, we're getting older and, and we do have, a, we started talking about succession planning. So, it's good that they, they they realize that and they're talking about it. It's hard to know um, how serious that plan is or what the bench strength, you know, really is there. Yeah. So I guess it could go both ways. It could be a fundamental issue of management of the company, or it could be a, you know, a potential catalyst for, you know, for a sale to a strategic. That's, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. I, I bet these guys are really averse to taxes. So <laughs> selling seems, uh, uh, I, I don't know if that is something that I would expect them to do, um, out, you know, outside of, you know, selling a few percent a year from a standpoint, but it's hard to say. Yeah, definitely at some point there's an end game here. Um, 
or a transition that needs to happen. And, and certainly they have a lot of skin in the game and, and a lot of incentive to, to make sure that, uh, you know, they, they don't do something that, that will hurt the, the valuation of what they built. Hey, Joe, I had a, a quick question just to take a step back on uh, lot availability. And you sort of mentioned this industry is really impacted by NIMBY. Um, I mean, if you listen to any of the public builders, you know, home builders, it seems like, you know, they were definitely caught short on lots um, and everything like that. So I'm, I'm curious, as the competition for lots only heats up, and there seems like there's a municipality, municipality bias against uh, manufactured housing communities. How are you thinking about that as an impediment to growth longer term, especially now as you have these much better capitalized home builders that are desperate for lots? Yeah, good question. Um, so, I mean, they'll, they'll say that there is a, you know, uh, I think, in Kenny's words on one of the calls, there, there's a place to put them problem, right? Like you, there's, there's a lot of people coming asking, especially since COVID happened, right? People don't have to be tied to where they used to live for work. Um, they want to get into a different space or get off the grid and, and uh, uh, they are interested in, in a house, but they don't have a spot to put it or they, you know, it takes time to go buy a chunk of land out in the country and, get septic in and, you know, get it ready to, to, to put something on it. So, um, that, that is, you know, a problem. I, it certainly doesn't seem they, they got, again, the backlogs are, are crazy. So there seems to be plenty of all those folks know where they're going to put them presumably. Um, so, uh, uh, it doesn't seem to be as big of an issue right now. Um, then, but, you know, they're trying to take some of that into their own, uh, in their own hands with all their, uh, communities that that they're self-developing and and uh you know they've sort of that the the pace of development slowed down at first it was you know with covid just getting the um all the permitting and and the municipalities are just moving like molasses uh and now you know they they don't have the the people and materials to build it out even if uh and then the backlog's so strong that you know they're, they're kind of seem content to get it ready to land houses on and but then maybe just let that asset you know, percolate till the right time. Um, but they definitely are looking at uh, creating their own communities for the place to put them problem. Yeah, makes sense. Is that functionally kind of lowering the return on domestic capital by a couple of points? Um, just thinking of putting up that capital for, I don't know, three, four or five years before you really get homes put down on it. Yeah, it's so small right now. Um, it's it's like under 20 million is everything they have tied up in in land investment and uh improvements um but it's it's definitely um so it would your return on equity from a book value standpoint i suppose yeah the but those just having the entitlements on on that land i mean i don't know you know brian do you know of any work on what you think that is worth based on just having entitlements and the work they've done so far with, you know, you could flip that for it's probably double. I think they said like, they said something along the lines on the call, but if you, if you, if you kind of grab that acreage table, they stick in the 10 K um, or, or every 10 Q. Um, and they talked about this. They said they do roughly four 
units per acre. They own they own right now a thousand acres. So you, so you, they said they do four or five. I think they said five or six, somewhere like four to six. Call it. Um, you have you have to make some room for obviously road access and drainage. So that probably bumps you down to four. But if you call it five, that's five thousand units on the thousand acres they own, um, which is which is a lot of production, right? That's over a year of production. Um, that's number one. Number two, they bought, so they bought all that acreage, like collectively, um, they bought that acreage, uh, for 10,000 an acre. So that's, you know, 2000 or 2,500 per pad. Um, and then they throw, they throw a unit on it and that's somewhere in the third, you know, they said this on the last call, like 30 to 40,000. And then they do another 2,500 a um, couple thousand bucks a site improvement. So they're all in for somewhere around 40,000. Then they rent them out. Um, they quoted this number. You can go actually stalk mobile home parks and see what these things lease for. Um, but they generally lease for, you know, it depends on where you are in the country, but uh, call it 500, 400, 500 bucks a month. Um, nicer ones or double wides and, and nicer developments, you know, six or 700 or in California. Um, but call it 500 bucks a month. So that's 6,000 bucks a year on a 40,000 investment. Then they talked th- about this a little bit on the last call. I just, this is me purely speculating, but I assume at some point this is how they get their capital back. Um, if you look at uh, Equity Lifestyle or Sun, those are two big REITs in the mobile home park space. And those guys have free cash flow yields. So free cash flow relative to their market cap of like 3%. So if these guys legacy are scoring, you know, anywhere from um, easily pushing, you know, 12, 15% returns annual on their 40,000 investment per site, um, that's a big number. You can flip it to those guys and those guys can still, they have lower capital cost. So those guys will pay up. One of the investors on the last call even talked about it, where those guys publicly traded something like a hundred or one hundred twenty thousand per unit. Um, so that again fits totally into that equation. These guys can come in with lower capital cost, um, pay up, and and they can still get their returns that they need for their own shareholders. Um, and so, and and they have not done any of these deals to date, correct? They so they haven't no. On the site, on the development, they they said that they've they're almost at 400 units that they've put on their own acreage. They haven't sold anything, so they've sold directly to um, some larger purchasers and some mobile home parks. But they haven't sold a developed uh, site or a collectively right a developed neighborhood. They haven't sold that to an end REIT. And by the way, just just to add to Joe's comment on. Um, Kurt Hodgson being the alpha male. If you look up one of their biggest sites is Horseshoe Bay in Texas. Um, and if you go to those town council minutes, it's Kurt Hodgson that's showing up there with an attorney to get the required permits and zoning and stuff like that. So he's actually cited um, being in those town council meetings. So he's definitely, I agree with Joe, he's definitely the, the alpha manager <laughs> of, of the company, so to speak. So this is super interesting because I think a lot of what I've heard so far is, you know, this is a steady Eddie compounder. Not sure if you have to run out and buy it tomorrow. Um, no hard catalyst, let's say. 
but you're telling me that they've developed 400. So, you know, the perception of the market is like, okay, these 400 homes are doing a couple million bucks per year of EBIT. Whereas you flip these to Sun and they could be worth $40 million. So, which to me feels like, and of course they're going to do a lot more than 400. To me, that feels like the first thing that I've heard that's, wow, that's it. That, that would change the story a bit, right? And be multiple enhancing and super interesting. Correct me if I screwed up any of that logic, but but that I sounds think, worthy of further discussion. I think that's right. I think like if you're in if you're a cop if you're a capital compounder bro, I'll call it right. And, and I totally love that <laughs> investment style. Um, you need a repeatable process, right? You need some competitive advantages that allow you to earn excess returns on your capital, which we know these guys have. And then the, the, the third stool, and this is extremely critical to the math over a number of years, is you need the ability to reinvest those earnings at equally or, or higher rates of return, um, but at least equally, right? You can't invest, you know, if you, if you have return on equity or return on capital of 50 or 70 or 30%, that's great, but your stock's going to trade as an annuity on an earnings stream. It needs somewhere to put that money. This goes back to when you talk about the bottleneck in the industry potentially um, with that decline in industry sales and the bottleneck being where do you put these and you have to basically open up that bottleneck and create and do that yourself. Um, and that's what these guys are doing. So I totally agree with you. I think that's kind of a, a nugget that is underappreciated and it's going to take patience, right? It's probably going to take three, four, five years um, for, to see dollar signs from that materially. But I think the bigger picture is these guys have found a way to recycle capital at equally high rates of return, which is critical to the company. Otherwise, they own three production plants that are at capacity. Maybe you build out the Georgia plant a little bit more. Maybe you don't, but that's a less compelling story. Well, why should it take three, four, five years? If we prove out the economics, we know how many homes they can build on those tracts of lands. I don't think you have to wait until you've sold every last, um, you know, every last home, right, for the market to realize the value. Should, and I guess that's why my question is, you know, why not sell the first hundred or two hundred to a son and just prove out the value proposition? That's a good. That's well, a I good think, idea. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Joe go. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, well, so first off, I, I don't think they've actually placed any homes on their developments. They have close to 400 um, homes that are leased on their balance sheet, but that's actually two other that's manufactured right. housing developments, right? So uh, the, okay, okay. Their, their, their closest their closest property, their most further along on the development is their Bastrop County development, which is their largest two. It's 400 acres. It's within 15 minutes of the new Tesla plant that's getting built outside of Austin. Um, so great location. They bought it before that was known. So, you know, they got great real estate there. They can place, I've heard, I think a thousand, I think I've heard 1200 homes there, but let's just say it's a thousand. And, you know, if, if you're selling the, the landed pads or, or, or a developed pad, if it's going for upper five digits is, which is what we heard on the last call. I mean, once that's completely developed and you got homes on it, I mean, you can flip that at today's rates to a, one of the REITs for, you know, getting close to $100 million, but definitely way over, you know, $50 million. Um, and so that's the point. I think that's a big point that Brian said is there's a long runway to keep reinvesting at the same high rates that they've, they've been doing. And they've been doing this for 
you know, 14 years. So that's where for me, I don't have a catalyst for multiple expansion happening to, you know, to get in parity with, with peers, but if they keep compounding at 15% and the multiple stays the same, you make 15% a year, right? That's kind of the, the thesis. I want, I, I actually wonder, um, if, and this point was brought up earlier where people are confused, is it a production company? Is it a lender? And then until they do that first flip and assuming they do do that first flip, but until they do that, um, or put material revenues in place, if, if it leaves, um, kind of like a lull over the next year or two, I get that the market should be forward looking, but if people start scratching their head, well, now they're a lender, a production company and, and I think a re um, <laughs> or a landlord or something. Right. And you can see how now, even though I think we all collectively agree, it's a, it's a phenomenal opportunity and extension of, of their business and something they can do. Well, I do wonder if people will scratch their heads at some point, because now you've thrown in a third, um, a third line of business. Yeah. So if they milk the cow, so to speak, like uh, I think Kurt said in the last call, and keep and just hold on to these developed properties and, and, you know, get the, the net operating income themselves. Um, those will for sure be, uh, you know, undervalued and this thing will sell, you know, less than some of the parts, right. It's, that's sure. the part that, you know, um, it's hard to think that it's going to get fairly valued inside of this um, versus if you, you know, flip it out to a REIT, but who knows which way they'll go there. Yeah. I've had people push back on, the idea of mobile homes in general um, and, and my kind of, I don't know if this is right or right or, or incorrect, but my pushback to them is there's always a market for selling new stuff. So, you know, there's always going to be people with different budgets. Um, and if you think about it, like from an auto perspective, you can either buy a brand new Hyundai and, you know, maybe BMW is a better car. Um, but some people, if they have that budget, may buy a used BMW, and some people may buy a brand new Hyundai. And I think that dynamic, I think there's some aspect to that in in this industry is, you know, some people don't want a new house. Um, some people want a new house. Some people don't want a used house. And obviously, there's the affordability aspect. So if that's where your budget lines up, you can buy a very used house, right, in a certain location or potentially one of these and, and some of the newer neighborhoods are actually pretty attractive. Hey, hey Brian, that's an interesting point on um, affordability. Um, looking at the latest queue, it looks like the revenue per product or revenue per homes up to 59,000. It's up 34%. How do you think about what the run rate for the housing prices should be like what the budget for one of these consumers is and, you know, do you expect pricing pressure as the COVID bump normalizes or do you think they'll grow or they'll be able to increase prices from here going forward? Like, how do you think about that? I don't know. I'll be honest. Like that's, that's a tough question, right? That's like your million dollar question to, to a certain extent. Um, I, I can't, this isn't a very well thought out answer, but, but I'll be honest. Like I, I just assume, I kind of assume I do model this stuff out and I just kind of run it forward. Um, so I, they set a number this year where they've had, and Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, like 13 or 17 or 12 price increases during the year. Um, it was a big number. Um, their margins are actually wider too. I think that's where yeah. they got a lot of the net income, right? They, 
they and I think costs went up like four grand per unit, and then selling price went up, um, you know, quite a bit more, like ten thousand per unit just over the right. last like two. Yeah, so. Um, but I think if you look at the gap, I know Joe has this in his article. Um, if you look at a gap between stick built homes, even if you do kind of more of an apples to apple, so you correct for size, um, the numbers are pretty mind boggling, right? It's like if you look around the country for a stick built home, you're at least at 150. You might be at 200. Um, granted, you have a lower cost mortgage potentially, um, potentially not, right? It depends on the customer. Uh, but but you throw in a fifty thousand number or seventy thousand or sixty right, which is where some of these retail um, because remember these guys their sales their selling price is partly wholesale to other dealers um, and other mobile home parks. But so if you're talking like a you know sixty to hundred thousand dollars selling price, you can still put that's a big difference between one hundred fifty and two hundred thousand right uh, as a comparator. Um, sure. Yeah. So. Um... The only, if, the only pushback yeah. I would have is that it uh, looks like the product volume, so total product sold, is down after that price increase. It looks like you're running into some uh, sort of demand elasticity at this price point just looking at the financials. I don't know this story. I could have you know missed something, but it just looks like after a 34% bump in pricing, uh, it may cause um, more budget-conscious consumers to have... Um, you know, problems there, or it could have been a supply thing. Like Joe might know this better. Uh, I'm just it, curious. I yeah, think it was supply. Ahead. They said they've had la- they've they've had some labor issues, both in terms of getting employees to show up. Maybe it means they have to pay them more, but um, they've also had employee turnover, which slows productivity. Uh, so it was more on the labor side than anything else. They did. They made a comment. Uh, I think it was the last call that they had, and I I think specifically the number they quoted was we might have had one or two cancel out of our backlog after all those price increases. So they kind of called it like a 95, 99% retention rate um, on raising price and the ability to convert that to a sale. Uh, yeah, the other thing that's... Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, go ahead, Joe. I'm done. Oh, yeah. yeah I was going to say the other thing that, that, you have, that doesn't pop um, is the number of homes sold. It's not number of sections sold, right? So as the mix changes and they're doing more double wides, you know, that's still the same number of sections from the same amount of, you know, production throughput. And you're going to see then a higher sale price per home um, just from a mix. So you can tell that they, they definitely like to talk in sections, but yet they, their tables don't, but they put homes instead of sections in their, in their documents. I think in the, you have to read actually the, the paragraphs in the um, management discussion analysis to, to pull out how many sections and, um, I actually have that on a to-do list for me to just go back for the last, you know, eight quarters and pull those numbers out just so I can see a per section basis, but they I'll haven't agree. had cancellations from the, from the price increases. Yeah. I'll, I'll, and I'll, I'll just add, so I have this in front of me. It was like 2019 was 3,900 sections. So Gary, you're actually right about this. 2019 was 3,900 sections. 2020 was 3,800 and then year to date is twenty seven oh nine. So if you annualize that, you're at thirty six hundred or thirty six twelve. Um, but I think if if you kind of dive into some of those calls, these guys are pretty explicit um, about them having issues with uh, not just getting employees into the factory, but the ones they get with the higher turnover, they're just not as productive. Um, 
you know, so I, I don't know if I don't know if we're seeing that through, but 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 it's definitely stepped down a little bit over the last two years. Although they did state last quarter that they, I think it was the first time they've stated that they're back to pre-pandemic. That's right. Uh, yeah, it was like fifteen. It was like fifteen or sixteen a day, which is which is fifteen or sixteen floors a day or sections a day, which I think is like where they where they kind of peak. They quoted it a year or two ago what they could do or maybe it was on a call that I had directly with them. And the number was like 16. And I think in the last quarter, they quoted something like 15 and a quarter per day. So they're like right there. All right. So last one for me before I open it up and see if there's any other from the group. Um, If I'm uber bullish on housing, walk me through why I shouldn't just buy one of the home builders. That's a lot that, that are a lot, uh, optically cheaper now I, I know there's different risk profile but but you know am i if if the most bullish housing narrative plays out uh, is there going to be relative underperformance here good question <laughs> um, <laughs> which is why I didn't take it. <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i don't know how to answer that i i mean i used to try to play the uh, I've owned home builders, you know, waiting for this demographic, you know, pent up demand to unleash. And, and then I, I pivoted and, and moved, moved my capital in, into this space. But uh, uh, maybe there's a little bit of the, everyone is still so battle scarred from the last, uh, you know, crash that, you know, they're, they're just worried. You're always fighting the last battle. Right. And I, so I think there's still a, always a concern there, but I don't, from a valuation standpoint, uh, outside of the need, like you have to develop property to be a home builder where you don't have to. So there is a different capital um, needs, but uh, that's about the best I got for you. The the builders are also trading at the highest multiples of book that they've traded at in quite some time. Now that is book value versus sort of what we're talking about EBITDA, but it is a questionable decision of whether or not you should even capitalize EBITDA of a home builder, just given that they have to recreate their operations every time they finish a community. Whereas this, you do have the manufacturing piece, which leads me back to the fact that they are sort of becoming a developer in some sense uh, that we talked about. I got to say that's honestly more negative, even though it seems like they got a great deal on this Austin piece of land, they basically are acquiring a raw piece of land. And, you know, there's carry costs associated with that. They're, they're going to have to develop it basically admitting that it's hard to find places to build and um, things like that. I know Clayton is also sort of doing that. Um, So I don't really view it as like a, a competitive advantage thing or anything like that other than, how you can get caught up on analyzing home builders that acquired land, you know, five years ago, and they're just now building lots on it. It can make the ROE look fantastic. But if you looked at a replacement cost on a go forward basis, it's less attractive. So that's definitely something I I would struggle with on this one. I think one, one thing that I, that I rely on to, to try to answer this question is if you look at the 2004 Berkshire Hathaway letter, Buffett set, so this is 2004, right? So the industry at that point in time was doing well over 100,000 unit sales per year in the country. 
And Buffett actually quotes in that letter regarding Clayton, he says the industry continues to reside in intensive care. Um, these guys, a couple years later, start their year or two later, start this business. Um, industry sales, and this was noted at the beginning of this call, fall all the way to a trough of 50,000. So Buffett's saying in 2004, this industry is in intensive care. At that point in time, units were 130,000. Unit sales fall to 50,000 over the next 13 years while these guys miraculously grow legacy. So I kind of, I enjoy the fact that these guys have um, some sort of idiosyncratic formula where if there's a downturn, I want to buy the business rather than the industry. And I think these guys somehow, right, and maybe this gets into key man risk more than anything else. Um, but outside of that, these guys have found a way to operate um, through that period uh, very successfully. So, you know, with the home builders, I don't think that um, many of them, maybe NVR, but have done a great job at avoiding an industry downturn um, and not letting it impact their business, where I don't think that's the case here. It is worth noting, I think, are interesting that not, I don't think many people know this. Uh, so there's Clayton Homes, right? But then there's also Clayton Property Group owned by Berkshire. And that has 10 site-built, stick-built builder logos um, in that family, a part of Clayton Property Group. So, um, you know, that Buffett's and Berkshire had been on a little uh, acquisition spree of, of traditional builders over the last 10 years. Um, I, I don't know if they've done any in the last two or three years. Um, but, uh, the, I know if within my company, we make, we make fireplaces. So we're a supplier to, to the, the home building industry. And, uh, uh, we speculate on what are they trying to do here? Right. Are they trying to, do they just like that industry also, or the economics there, or, um, are they trying to do something with Clayton? Um, or manufactured housing and, and sort of disrupt how homes are built, right? Are they trying to change how, you know, something innovative on, on how more traditional homes are built and, and more of that happening in factories? And don't know the answer, but it's an interesting uh, tidbit, I think. All right, so I think um, we went a little bit, we went, quite over an hour. Um, I'll just ask you, Joe or, or Brian, if there's anything that wasn't discussed that you, that you uh, think is, is, is crucial. Uh, from my end, I think we, we covered most of it. Um, a lot of good questions there. All right. Well, listen, Joe, I really appreciate it. Everybody should follow Joe. Um, uh, if you want more information, read his, read his initial write up on the stock. Um, and uh, this has been a lot of fun, as always. I'll be rooting against the Vikings tonight, Joe. Sorry, uh, can't can't do that for you. So uh, so go Steelers, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for having us on. Thanks, okay, guys. Enjoyed thanks the so conversation. Much. Yep. Bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. bye.